Uh, my name is Aaron, and I have the privilege of serving as the um, campus pastor of Friends Church Eastville. Kind of crazy to say that. We haven't launched yet, but it's getting there. And I have the joy of um, being on an amazing team of people from this church uh, to plant that campus, launching in February of 2022. And so if you are from the 909 here tonight or know someone who is, we would love to connect with them. A little update for you. We launched our Alpha course, a picture on the screen, I think, uh, in a local coffee shop in Eastvale this past summer. Uh, it has been amazing for us to do ministry in a public setting, and God has really um, exceeded expectations for our team and our group. It's been awesome. And then we uh, had a, a training for all the families that live there, but a worship here uh, in Eastvale. Next slide. That's the building that we're looking to rent out there in uh, Eastvale called Silver Lake Sports Complex off the 15. Um, so you can be praying for us as we get ready for the launch. And if you are interested in stepping in with us, uh, I hope that every Christian gets a chance to be part of a church planning team at some point uh, in your Christian journey. Uh, we would love to chat with you and discern what level of involvement that will look like. Uh, you can just talk to me after the service uh, or text uh, the word more, as in like more information, to 75787, uh, and our team will, I feel like I'm selling a car, but I'm really just telling you the information. We'll get uh, you plugged in and just have a conversation about what's going on. So thank you for praying. We need it. Uh, it's been awesome. Now let's get to uh, the passage tonight, what we're doing. We're in a series called Keeping It Together. And the past two years, there have been a lot of circumstances in our culture that have sought to tear us apart, uh, to tear our lives apart, our culture apart, and our faith apart. And every single week we gather here to together uh, in this series, we want to give you a biblical ingredient uh, to experience what God has for you to keep your faith together and experience all that he has for you. Uh, my daughter is really into these Netflix uh, shows for like cooking. Uh, it's like nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds who uh, like cook these amazing pastries and cakes. You all know what I'm talking about, maybe. Uh, and she loves watching these things. And on the show, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a kid, a contestant, will like make up these incredible pastries. And they look great and are, you know, you know good tasting and all that. But every so often, uh, a child will make a cake and it'll look really good. But when the judge comes over to uh, taste it, you can tell that it doesn't have the right ingredients. And, you know, their face kind of, you know, grimaces a little bit, and they give them encouragement, but they know it's not really the right mix of everything you need to make that cake really tasty and good. And now, I'm not a, a chef or a cook at all. Like, I shouldn't be behind that barbecue tonight at all, okay? Um, but I am a foodie, and uh, I can tell you that when it comes to experiencing all that God wants for us in our faith and keeping it together, that it really is the right combination of ingredients that we must add in our faith to hold it all together and experience what God has for us. Now, where am I going with this illustration? Tonight, I want to talk about two ingredients. One, you never want to have in your Christian faith. And the other one is the secret sauce to everything that God wants for us in the Christian faith. Uh, tonight, I get to talk about pride and humility. And pride is probably the most destructive attitude and force and sin that we have in the world today. Proverbs 16, 18 says this. It says, pride comes before the... You all know it. You see, everyone knows. Everyone knows that pride destroys. I don't even have to set that up. We all know that arrogance and pride 
at its worst hurts people. When athletes make it about the name on the back and not the name on the front, that team is not going to go far in the playoffs. <clears throat> LeBron James. Um, just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, sorry. Um, uh, when a married couple or any couple tries to dig into their wants and desires and fight for their rights in the relationship, you know that that argument isn't getting solved quickly. We know that um, when you're at work and your boss thinks that they know more than you as an employee, or maybe as an employee you think you know more than your boss, that work is not fulfilling. And we know that when Christians are self-righteous, there is very little love to attract people to Jesus. Pride destroys. It's destructive. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud. I want to just sit on that haunting truth for a moment. God opposes the proud. Think about that with me for a moment. At times when we have pride or arrogance in our life, that means that we have prayers that go unanswered. When we have pride or uh, arrogance in our life, that means that we don't get to experience the joy that God has for all of us in the Christian life. When we have pride and arrogance in our life, what happens is that our life groups and our church community just doesn't seem as appealing to sacrifice for. God opposes the proud. But it's the second part of that verse that I want to focus on most tonight, and that is this, that God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. The best parts of God are given to us when we humble ourselves before him. When we think about our marriage or our dating relationships or what's ahead of us, it is the key ingredient. It is the secret sauce to everything that God wants for you in the Christian life. There isn't a better secret sauce. It is all about humility. It unlocks God's heart for us. Sounds pretty good, right? It is. Humility is awesome until you actually have to be humble. Humility sounds great on paper until you actually have to own up to the dysfunctions that we create in relationships. Humility sounds great until your kids do not care about your accomplishments when you walk through that front door. Humility sounds really awesome until we have to own up to anything that we've caused, problems and whatnot, at work and in our relationships and our faith. So what is humility? Humility is this quality, this virtue, this godly virtue, where we get to look at ourselves correctly, accurately. Humility is all about how you view you, the way that God wants you to view yourself. Accurately, modestly, not too big, not too small, not with an ego, not like, you know, low self-esteem, accurately. Humility is about seeing yourself modestly, your work, your accomplishments, your status, your job titles, your relationships, your character. It's all about how you see yourself. And in, when, you, when you look at yourself uh, in a humble way, you can also esteem other people for who they are as well. It doesn't put people down to make yourself feel better. It doesn't disparage yourself. To, you know, it's humble. Humility is awesome. It's great until it's put into play. But it is the key ingredient in our Christian life. So the question is for us, how do we become humble? How do we allow God to work in us this quality where we can see ourselves the way that God sees us and be the people God wants us to become and experience all that he has for us? Well, in Mark chapter 10, 
In our passage tonight, uh, tonight uh, Jesus gives us, really it's a whole chapter on humility, but two points that I have time to, to kind of focus on. And, uh, and here's the two points. I'll give them to you up front. Number one, humility is not making it about yourself, but about giving up yourself. Ooh, already. I mean, come on, it speaks to all of us. And number two, humility is about bowing to the crucified Christ. That's how humility is formed in us. Humility is formed in us, number one, not by making it about ourselves, but by giving up ourselves. And number two, by bowing to the crucified Christ. So in your Bibles, uh, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, y'all with me? And you can get a Bible um, if you need one in your row somewhere, uh, and, or it'll be on, lo- on, the, on the screen. But I encourage you to um, uh, pull out your Bible and get familiar with it if it's all new to you. Mark chapter 10. And before I uh, pr- uh, uh, read, let me pray for us. Father God, we just ask tonight that you would open up our eyes, soften our hearts, and would you speak Jesus, a better word about humility and pride. Jesus, we just invite your presence. May your word come alive. And God, I thank you for this amazing church that we have and the many people that serve to make it what it is. Thank you for each person here and their story and how much you love them and love us. Would we understand that more deeply tonight in your name? Amen. Uh, So Mark chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 13, and I'll begin reading. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up, and he fell on his knees before him and said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, I have kept all of these things since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And at this The man's face fell, and he went away sad, because he had great wealth. We pick up uh, the story in verse 13. There are a bunch of stressed-out parents, I imagine, and their kids, and they're bringing them to Jesus in hopes that this very famous rabbi, Jesus, will uh, bless them and say a prayer for them. And in verse 14, we find out that Jesus, uh, Jesus feels indignant because the disciples are keeping the children from him. Can we all say the word indignant, just to humor me for a moment tonight? Indignant. Can you all say that with me? It's not a word we use very often. Um, It's a word that means angry or upset or mad. We kind of pick it up in the story, but I I just want to focus on it for a moment because it reveals God's heart, and I'll get to that in a moment. But uh, Jesus was upset at this. He was angry with the disciples that they were keeping these children from him to pray for them. 
And it was common in that day and age for a rabbi like Jesus to bless children. In fact, parents would bring kids to rabbis all the time, much like our children's dedications are here, and they would lay a hand on the top of their head and they would bless them. And they would pray to God that God would bless their life. Now, there are two uh, Hebrew words in the Old Testament about uh, blessing. The first one is Asherah, and the second one is Baraka. Both of these words carry with it an idea that God will give a person a sense of well-being if they live in tune with him. In the New Testament, God talks about blessing a lot, and blessing has nothing to do with superficial success. Because superficial success can oftentimes create smug, self-righteous pride. Blessing in the New Testament has to do with this idea of being fully satisfied by God in our faith. Not because of circumstances, but because of who God is and how he views us and who we are to him. Blessing describes what God does to us. It's not something that we do with God. It's something that God does to us and to you in your life. Blessing is that he pours out his love in our life, he gives us his goodness and meets all of our needs, and he empties himself so that we can understand who he is. What this means is that anybody in pain or suffering or humble circumstances can actually experience blessing because blessing is not based on circumstances, it's on the goodness of God. And these stressed out parents wanted Jesus to bless their children to experience the goodness of of their creator. Rabbis in Jesus' day would also say a special blessing for boys and girls. For the little boys, they would give a blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph, and it seems like a random blessing. Like, why wouldn't they, you know, give a blessing of David or of Moses? Obviously, more important figures than Ephraim and Manasseh, but that's what they did. And the reason why is because Ephraim and Manasseh were the two uh, boy, first boys in the Bible who were not competitive with one another. They didn't seek to have power against one another, and their families were not a source of any kind of difficulty for them. And so when a rabbi would bless a little boy with the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh, he was essentially blessing them with harmony and peace and humility in their life. And the little girls were blessed with the blessing of Rebecca and Sarah and Leah. And Sarah and Rebecca and Leah were three women with a strength of faith. And so a rabbi would bless a little girl to have the strength of faith to walk through the obstacles of life with, with God, in unity with him. And Jesus wanted to bless these children, but the disciples kept these kids from Jesus. How come? What was the reason for that? Well, in the first century, um, children had very little um, self-import- or social importance and civil rights. To the disciples, the children offered very little to Jesus' social status. They weren't an important rabbi who would raise the clout of the ministry and advance their mission. Uh, the children were not uh, some wealthy business person who could you know, meet all of their financial needs and expand what they were up to. They were just kids running around. And we've all experienced this. You know, like if you ever go to someone's house and you have your kids with them, I have two little ones myself. And um, my kids walk in, and the person doesn't even recognize that they're two kids right here. They just look at me, you know. Or, um, you know, if we go to a, a restaurant, you know, the, the waiter may not even talk to my kids. They just talk to me. And, you know, they're, they're kids in our culture, in all cultures, kind of get overlooked. And this was the case 
in this moment with Jesus. The children offered very little practical value to the disciples, and they pushed them away, hoping to move on to more important matters. Jesus sees this. He feels indignant and upset, and he uses it to teach a kingdom lesson. He says this in verse 14, let them come, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. Now, I imagine that most of us have heard this verse before. Maybe we have a picture of our grandkids with a frame, you know, in our living room with it around it. Or maybe we have a poster in one of our kids' rooms from Etsy with it on there. This is a very famous verse. Um, The kingdom of God belongs to children. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, Jesus is making a, a, a comparison. He's using a metaphor. And what he's trying to say is this, that just like a child wasn't considered socially important and had very few rights, so the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to give up our self-importance and our rights. Children, as you know, are utterly dependent on their mom and dad and caregivers for provision and protection and a sense of strength. And Jesus is making a radical statement about what it means to be his follower, to be his disciple. What he's saying is, if you want to follow me, you've got to become like a child. You've got to give up any sense of self-importance, any sense of entitlements, and trust in God to provide and follow. If we want to be humble, if we want God to form humility in us, it begins by surrendering our self-importance and our rights, and depend completely on Jesus. Now, if you're like me all week as I studied this, you're probably thinking that's really hard. And it is. And we get an up-close-and-personal view of it in the next section of the passage. In verse 17, Jesus gives them this lesson, and he begins to walk away. And as he's walking away, a man that the Christian history has called the rich young ruler approaches Jesus doesn't just approach him eye to eye or face to face. In fact, the passage describes this man as falling on his knees before him. He gets in a position of humility, a posture of humility. And at at first it seems like this rich young ruler, this wealthy man of of status and ambition, is going to embody the very principles of humility that Jesus is just talking about with the disciples and the kids. It looks like he gets it, like he's going to give it all up right then and there on the spot. We find out more about this guy. This guy is wealthy, he is powerful, he's successful, and he's the pinnacle of success in Jesus' day, and he is the pinnacle of success in our day as well. It seems like he has it all together, but we find out he doesn't. He's searching. Because whenever we make those things the main focus of our life, we can never be fulfilled in life. This man is looking for eternal life, the kind of life that only God can give, that only Jesus can give. Eternal life has to do with this quality of life that comes when you walk in intimacy with Jesus. He gives you his presence and his love. He forgives us, and we know him now and have the hope that we'll be with him in the future. It only comes through Christ. That's eternal life, and this man is looking for it. It can't be found in wealth and status. It can only be found in God. And so he comes and he tries to rationalize why he deserves 
eternal life. He says to Jesus, I've kept all the commandments. I've done it all. Uh, I've done everything correctly. And Jesus says to him, without any condemnation in his voice, there's one thing you lack. Go. Sell everything you have. Give it away. My translation is, it's killing your soul. Follow me where you will have treasure in heaven. The man who had it all, power and status and money, he still lacked something. He lacked humility. He was too full of self-righteousness and self-importance, and he couldn't let it go, and he walked away. A passage describes a man sad because he couldn't let it all go. So how do we let God form humility in us. What's the first step? Number one, like I said before, humility is not making it about ourselves, but about giving up ourselves. Uh, like a child in the first century had no social importance, humility is formed in us when we leave behind and abandon attitudes of self-righteousness and self-importance and self-reliance. If you want to become humble, don't focus on yourself. Give up yourself. Give up your self-reliance your self-righteousness, and your self-importance. You see, there is no way to experience the very best that God has for each one of us in this room if we hold on to any of these attitudes or all of them. All of these attitudes create a dissonance between us and God. You see, self-importance means that we know best. We're, you know, our way or no way. Uh, everyone should listen to us, and we have all the knowledge. And we might see this come out most in our relationships. Self-reliance has to do with our hustle, our work ethic. We can get it done. I don't need to rely on anybody else for coaching or help or guidance or support. And we can see this coming out in our work. And self-righteousness has to do with that we have the moral high ground, that we're the moral police, that we don't share our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities in life groups or with each other. We keep it inside and we begin to look at other people and their flaws and look down on them. And going back to that ingredient uh, illustration earlier, if we were to take a bowl and throw in a bunch of pride and then mix in with it a bunch of I want to be right all the time, you get self-righteousness. And Christians who have self-righteousness have oftentimes found it eating away at their soul and getting in, interfering with their joy. Christians with self-righteousness oftentimes become a barrier to people who don't know Jesus from entering into the church. Brash, unchecked self-righteousness can destroy our relationship with God. When we mix in pride and we throw in our effort, we get the, you know, self-reliance. And we mix in pride and when we throw in our accomplishments, we get our self-importance. And the rich young ruler had all three of these and he couldn't let him go like a child, and walk with Jesus. This is hard stuff, but there's good news in a moment. I'll get to that. Before I do, though, some, some application and just a story from my own life this week. I had a chance to go to Mammoth with my uh, family uh, in early July, and we had five days of just enjoying hiking and vacationing and the mountains, and I had five days of getting into this text and studying it and really studying Scripture in the morning before we went out and had uh, a great time in the afternoon. And then on, on day six, while my wife and I, Krista, were driving down the road, we got into an argument. And anyone who's gone on vacation with a spouse or, you know, uh, knows that, like, 
Vacation, man. It can bring it out, right? Come on now. We all know this. We're honest people in here. And so day six, we kind of got into an argument, and I realized at that moment what God was doing in my life. For five days, I got into this text, into the scriptures, and on the day we get into an argument, the scriptures were getting into me. Because as I talked about this uh, fight we were in, this argument, my wife and I clung to our sides. We dug in our heels. We made our needs more important than the other person's needs. And um, I thought I was right. And she thought she was right. And I found out later, she was right. (laughs) Right? Yep. And uh, we resolved it. We got through it. But I realized how deep in myself self-importance, self-righteousness, and self-reliance really runs. You see, men and women, for humility to get in us, we've got to let those things go. And we were able to, by God's grace, resolve it and repair it. And the way that you grow in humility isn't by focusing on yourself, but by focusing on others. That's how you grow in humility, by focusing on other people. And so we began to soften our hearts, and we focused on each other's needs and what we needed in that moment, and we were able to get through it, and, and, and words and phrases that accompanied it were, I was wrong. I am responsible for my emotions and my actions. I regret what I said. I'm sorry I hurt you. I will change and do better next time, and will you forgive me? Those are all phrases that will always accompany humility when we are focusing on the other. I recently read an inspiring story uh, of somebody who really lived this out in their Christian life, of letting these things go. And his name is Brandon Plott. He's actually the former uh, mayor of Eastvale where we're planting this new campus. And I read uh, an inspiring story. So Brandon was the mayor in 2020, and he decided not to run for re-election, even though he was the front runner in uh, the whole race. So everyone assumed he was going to get re-elected. And he said he wasn't going to run again because he wanted to focus on family. And so uh, he left it at that. And then nine months later, he disclosed more information about why. He declared in a statement that he and his wife in 2020 decided to foster to adopt a child from a broken home. And knowing the intense dedication that it takes to raise a foster child and adopt him, Brandon decided to surrender his prestigious position as the mayor so he could serve his adopted child. My friends, that is um, what it means to be great in God's kingdom. That is what it means to show humility in real life. To not focus on yourself, but to let yourself go, give up yourself, and to focus on others and serving others. You know, I'm not too sure what Brandon's um, spiritual life is like, but he did exactly what Jesus did for us. You see, Jesus was in the comforts of his position with the Father in heaven, and he saw each one of us in need, and he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to serve them. I'm going to give my best, my life to them. Right after the rich young ruler moment, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he tells them what's going to happen to him in a few Uh, short months ahead of him with the cross. He says this in verse 32 of chapter 10. He says, while they were on their way up to Jerusalem with with Jesus leading the way, the disciples were astonished 
because they were going to Jerusalem and they were afraid. And Jesus took them aside and said this, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Jesus sees us and he leaves his status and his position and he comes through our stoops to our level, and he serves us by dying on the cross. And the passage says that he was made fun of. He was mocked. He was spat on. He was flogged. And he was publicly crucified. And it happened because he loves each one of you in this room tonight. Because Jesus himself embodies humility. In fact, I love uh, in verse 32 what it says uh, about this thing. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem, and I love the nuance uh, that Mark uh, brings in this passage. It says, with Jesus leading the way. You see, Jesus isn't just the king who says, be humble, I love humility, and then does the opposite. Jesus is the king and the ruler who is leading the way towards humility. I get this picture of Jesus like, it's like a, you know, Ducks, you know, formation, you know, like the flying V or something like that. And Jesus is like walking to the cross and the disciples are kind of fearfully following behind him. Don't you feel that way with humility? Like, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that Jesus is going there and I want to follow Jesus. And that's who our King and our God is. He's a God who doesn't just say one thing but do the next. He's the one who actually does it. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has these famous words. He says this, in your relationships, keep it together, right? Keep it all in your relationships. Have the same mindset as Jesus, which was this, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ left heaven and served us. And that's the second way that we become humble, how humility forms in us. It all begins with us bowing to Jesus because he's the one who's leading the way towards humility. I was part of a ministry years ago um, that um, noticed that the worship leaders had a tendency to um, get, you know, they were tempted to get a big head because they were drawing a big crowd. And so uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the people who, the pastors on staff decided to put these big giant banners in the backstage room that had these three truths about God. One said, uh, I'm here to serve the one true and living God. One said, uh, my job is to make Jesus look really good. And the third one said, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. And these banners hung in the back and you had to go underneath them in order to get on stage. And so before you went on stage, you had to pass under these truths, which was super cool. But what was really cool about this was that they intentionally hung the banners high from the, from the ceiling and low enough so that when you went under them, you had to bow underneath each one of them three different times. So that by the time you got on stage, you had to be in a posture of humility, to be a reminder that 
We only do this because Jesus is the one who gets all the glory. Men and women, the way that humility is formed in us is by not making it about ourselves, but by giving up ourselves and following Jesus and by bowing to the one who didn't need to leave heaven, the one who deserves the glory, and that is Jesus himself. And you might be wondering, okay, Aaron, um, I get it. I'm in. I want humility. I know it's the key to unlocking God's heart. But what's in it for me? What's in it for me? That might be like a self-interested question after all this, but can I just say the disciples are brash enough to ask that same question? Don't you love the Bible? Verse 28, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, says to Jesus, we have left everything for you. In other words, underlying that question is is Peter saying, what do we get out of it? Okay, if we humble ourselves, what are we going to get out of this, Jesus? You've got to love how honest the disciples were and how honest we can be with God. And Jesus responds, not with condensation, what am I trying to say? Not with sarcasm, I'll just make it at that one, right? Um, not with sarcasm, but with an, a direct answer. He says in verse 29, anybody who humbles himself, he says, he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. It's not going to be perfect if you humble yourself, Jesus says. And in the age to come, eternal life. I don't have time to unpack all that Jesus means by what he says here. But the benefit for anyone who humbles themselves, Jesus runs a list off of blessings. There's that word. You see, the very thing that Jesus wanted to do for the children, Jesus wants to do for you. He wants to bless your life. He wants to bless you. He wants to bless his kids. Remember that word indignant earlier on? Jesus was upset with the disciples because it is in God's nature to want to bless people who humble themselves. He just wants to give himself to people who say, I need you. I need you. And in my experience, when we do that, God takes care of the rest, which is what he's getting at in this passage about the blessings. Blessing is not found in our self-importance. It's not found in our self-righteousness. It's not found in our accomplishments. It's found in humbling ourselves to Jesus. And when we do, Jesus loves to just bless. He wants to bless. This evening, as we... um, conclude, wrap up, I just want to give an invitation to anybody here who relates either to the children in the story or to the rich young ruler. And just really quickly first, for anybody who's never said yes to Jesus, who knows in their heart that what this world offers cannot satisfy, we want to invite you, today is your day. This chapter in scripture has spoken to many people throughout history And if anything, whether it be work or job or status or bank account or title or anything gets in the way of you and God, don't walk away from Jesus like this man in the story. Drop it all, man. Let it go and say, I am following you, Jesus. I want your blessing more than I want what this world has to offer. That is what humility 
looks like with God. And maybe today you're feeling like a child where you're like low circumstances, overlooked by people. God's blessing is not based on your circumstances. It's based on his love for you. Or maybe today you feel like you're like the rich young ruler, have it all together, and you know in your heart that something is keeping you from all that God has, and it's this ugly thing called pride. And it's time to just say, Lord, I need to humble myself before you. I hope that hits anybody here. Would you pray with me? We want to invite you forward as we sing to any of our stations to receive prayer and just let people pray over you and bless you. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I realize that you don't have to say a whole lot about humility and pride for it to hit home. But Lord, your word says so much because it means so much to you that we be people who humble ourselves. And so Lord, right now, we just want to intentionally, in a posture of humility, say, Lord, we need you. And we want your blessing. God, would you bless us? Would you bless our families and our hearts and our lives and our work? We need your blessing more than anything else. And Father, if there's anybody here tonight who doesn't know you, doesn't know Jesus, drop it all. Simple prayer of God, come into my life. Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I need you. I want to follow you. If you pray that authentically, the Bible says you become a child of God. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.